Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. My favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. This industry brings together brilliant, highly motivated individuals who are driven by the opportunity to make a difference. My name is Hallie Tecco, and this is The Heart of Healthcare, a podcast where I'll be introducing you to the people on the ground, moving the needle in public health and medicine. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Dr. Will Bolsowitz, also known as Dr. B. He is a board-certified gastroenterologist, a nutritionist, and author known for his advocacy of gut health and plant-based nutrition. His first book, Fiber-Fueled, is a New York Times bestseller, and his new book, The Fiber-Fueled Cookbook, was just released. Dr. B is an internationally recognized gut health expert a trained epidemiologist, and the author of more than 20 scientific papers. In 2016, he started the account The Gut Health MD on Instagram to reach patients everywhere and debunk junk science. The account has grown to over 360,000 followers and is considered one of the internet's most trusted sources for gut health tips. A graduate of Georgetown University School of Medicine, He trained in internal medicine at Northwestern Memorial Hospital and gastroenterology at the University of North Carolina. He also earned a Master of Science in Clinical Investigation from Northwestern and a Certificate in Nutrition from Cornell University. All right, Dr. B, thank you for being here. Hell yeah, it's an honor to be here. I'm so excited to jump into this conversation with you. Likewise. So tell us about your background and what ultimately led you to this work that you do. And I especially want to know about what you call your food monster that inspired you. (laughs) Well, it's, you know, I, I guess just to take it from the top, I am someone who always dreamed of being a doctor. Like this is literally what I set out to do when I was 16 years old and went through a you know, what I would describe as a very rigorous educational program that started in college, like four years of pre-med at Vanderbilt. And then I did four years at Georgetown, four years at Northwestern. I was the chief resident there. That was internal medicine residency. And then I did four years at the University of North Carolina, where I was doing my gastroenterology fellowship. But I was also on a grant from the NIH. And I was studying at the School of Public Health at UNC. <laughs> so no pressure. And- there, it was a really chill life. Yeah. Well, I I have this problem that I have come to accept and acknowledge that even though in my mind, I I like always 
feel like I would be good at retirement, I'm starting to realize that's just simply if like, that's not true. <laughs> so <laughs> like, yeah. I, I just figure out ways to get myself into stuff. So even when I feel yeah. like I'm creating time, I still actually fill that time with something else. Yeah. Well, so. I, I'm, I'm the same way. And I actually like to say it's kind of like my life is like my purse, no matter how big of a purse I bring with me, I will fill it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I got my purse. So um, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, I go through this intense 16 years where, I mean, most of this period of time, you know, it would be fair to say that I'm working 12 or more hours per day and six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. And, and, and I'm very proud of my education. But the problem is that I found myself like, because this was so intense and rigorous, I needed shortcuts. I needed ways to basically create time for myself. And food was one of the ways that I could do that. I could opt for convenience. And guess what? Convenience tasted good. <laughs> there was a sense for me where it was like, look, I deserve this food. I, I deserve to eat the things that I enjoy because I am working so hard. And this is honestly all I got. Mm -hmm. And so when I was 18 years old, I could get away with it and still looked like the same guy that you saw in high school. But as the years carried forward, this pattern of basically eating convenience food, it started to catch up with me. And you wake up one day and you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you're like, who is this guy? And what I saw was someone who was 50 pounds overweight and literally my gut is sagging over the belt and blood pressure pills are sitting there on the sink and mm -hmm. high cholesterol and tons of anxiety. And even though my career professionally was everything that I wanted and actually a lot more, I mean, things were going amazingly well for me professionally. Even though that was the case, I actually had incredibly low self-esteem. Mm. And to an outsider, they would probably say, but Dr. B, like, dude, you were like, you won the highest award at Northwestern among 60 people. How could you possibly have low self-esteem? But that's how I felt. And I was miserable. And what I realized is that everything that I had been taught at these great institutions, the pills and the procedures that were in my doctor's kit, were not actually the solution for my own health problems. Hmm. And it's almost like, I don't know if you've experienced this, Hallie, I, I, I would guess that you probably have, because I think it's something that happens to all of us as we mature into adulthood. But it's almost like that realization at one point in your life where you discover that your parents are not perfect mm. yeah. and you still love your parents <laughs> yeah. so much. Right. But you also see that like, they're not a God, like they, they are human and they have their, their flaws like all of us. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that I started to feel about the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. It's great. We need it to ignore. It would be to me very foolish, but it also is flawed and it needs to be better. And so what ended up working for me, I actually tried to exercise my way out of this. Like at this time, I was in my early 30s. So like a typical guy, so I'm going to just go to the gym six days a week. And I could run faster. I could get stronger. I could swim further in the pool, but I couldn't lose the gut. Mm. And so it the challenge was that I, I actually really needed to take a hard look in the mirror at some of the things that I loved and acknowledge that maybe they weren't loving me back. <laughs> yeah. 
So things changed for me when I went on a date with the person who, believe it or not, she's my wife, (laughs) but we were just on a date and this was Mm -hmm. in Carborough, North Carolina. And we were at a restaurant called Acme. Anyway, like, you know, North Carolina, this is pork country and Smithfield is just down the road. And I was teeing up the pork chop and here's this person that I'm on a date with and she basically orders something that's not even on the menu. She says to the waiter, can you just have them take four or five of these vegetable based sides and like make it look nice on a plate? So I was just, my, my eyebrow was like way up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Who is this person? And I literally knew no one who was vegetarian, let alone vegan. Mm. But what I observed just being on this date with this person that I was excited about was that she cleaned her plate. She ate until she was full. She was just as satisfied and happy with her food as I was. But when we were done, I needed to go relax because I had a hangover Mm -hmm. and she was ready for round two. And it made me really start to think about maybe the food that I was raised on, maybe the food that I love is in fact holding me back. Mm -hmm. And so I started to make small changes. This was not a radical leap in any way. It was like small things like, for example, rather than going to Hardee's for the $4 grab bag where they give you like a double cheeseburger and a chili cheese dog and fries and a drink and an apple pie for four bucks. Rather than that, I just went home and I just threw a bunch of stuff in a blender and hit the button and then I drank it and made some great smoothies and was instantly energized. And um, so I doubled and tripled down on this and my skin started clearing up and my hair got thicker. And next thing I know, my pants are fitting me differently. And next thing I know, I have to buy new pants and the weight melted off my body. And I got back to weighing pretty close to what I weighed in high school. And so this um, was such a radical transformation in my life that it really motivated me because I asked questions, not condemning my education. I'm extremely proud to this day of my education and these institutions and these doctors who uh, mentored me and made me who I am. But it, it made me take a look at it and say, is there something that's missing? And I'm a man of science. I need to see the literature, the medical literature. Mm. It can't just be kind of a cool story. And yeah. I dug into the medical literature and was completely shocked to discover that there were not like 10 papers or 100 yeah. papers. There were thousands of papers to explain what had happened for me in my personal journey. And so I started, I became ravenous about learning more on this topic. And I started, you know, studying at night and then bringing it into my clinic the following day. And as a gastroenterologist, I was healing people, fixing a person's irritable bowel syndrome or taking them off the proton pump inhibitor that they're taking for acid reflux or putting ulcerative colitis into remission. And for these people, that's like easily as radical for them as my journey was for me. So uh, just to accelerate through what went forward from this, because what we're talking about right now is like roughly 2012 into 2014. Basically, I felt like this story needed to be shared. I felt like it was not appropriate for me to just be one-on-one in a clinic and not really put this message out when everyone needs to hear this. And so I did something that was very, frankly, uncomfortable for me, which is like, I think people may think that I like social media. I actually completely hate it. (laughs) And so I started a social media account in 2016 and 
Then I had a podcast go viral in 2018, which led to a book deal with Penguin Random House. And then in 2020, my book Fiber Fields came out and was a instant New York Times bestseller. And now here we are. And basically, Fiber Fueled has sold 200,000 copies. And I am launching my second book, The Fiber Fueled Cookbook, which I'm very excited about. So you went vegan yourself. And this is obviously something that you integrate into your practice. The U.S. has the highest meat consumption in the world. Like asking a patient, especially in the South, to think about modifying a diet that they've had for you know decades with so much emotion tied to it, so many memories tied to different flavors and dishes. Do they just, how do you overcome that kind of emotional reliance we have on the foods that are comforting to us? I think that you have to infiltrate a person's mind. I don't think that saying eat this, not that, or having a paternalistic view to the way that you deliver this type of message is going to work. Mm. And we've seen that, right? I mean, I'm pretty sure that there are doctors telling patients to eat salads out there. Mm -hmm. And that's not actually like realistically a solution to the problems that we have and the dietary patterns that um, I would say are very unbalanced. So, you know, I I think that at the end of the day, for me, so you mentioned that I'm vegan, but just to be clear, I, I am vegan as a result of this journey that took me there. And I actually separate in the way that I educate on this topic, veganism from plant-based because as a medical doctor, Mm. I see them as very different things. How so? So veganism to me is an ethical motivation and it's a beautiful thing. It actually comes from a place of selflessness, but it's concern for the animals or it's concern for the environment. Mm. And that could motivate a person to eliminate animal products, but you could easily turn to junk food in the process mm-hmm. of doing that. That's not a healthy diet. Yeah. Whereas a plant-based diet to me is the most acceptable, most celebratory form of selfishness that we have out there because what you're choosing is a diet that actually nourishes your own personal body in a way that lifts your health up. Yeah. And so as a medical doctor, th- these are separate things and I'm not here to talk about the ethics and I generally avoid those topics to be honest with you because there are other people who are experts and that's not me. Yeah. But I'm here to talk about a plant-based diet which to me is it comes in actually many forms and it's not necessarily an exclusively plant diet although it could be. And that's a very healthy diet. But there are also different ways that you could eat a plant-based diet and be completely healthy and not necessarily be vegan. Mm -hmm. And my concern and motivation, to be honest with you, Hallie, is I'm not worried about the person who's 90% plant-based and doing perhaps a modified paleo diet or something like that and trying to get them to go like 100% plant-based. I mean, if they do, that's great. But my concern is the average American, where the average American right now is 10% plant-based. And if I walk out on the street and we have a random sample of people, like we get outside of our little bubble that we have here, because you and I, for the listeners at home, we live in the same place. If we have a random sample of Americans, 19 out of 20 people that you and I would come into contact with are deficient in fiber right now. And this is what I'm trying to address. I'm not worried about the person who's doing great. 
I mean, I do want them to do even better, but I really am worried about the person who has a completely unbalanced diet and they're suffering health consequences and they don't, they, they haven't even connected the dots to understand Yeah, that that's the reason. Yeah. Well, I, I have a lot of questions on fiber for after the break, but I, uh, you're obviously the biggest advocate that I know around gut health and fiber and the connection there. But backing up just a little bit, you talked about people not have, having you know 10% plant-based diet. When you look at the food pyramid, and I, I think it's changed since we were kids and first learned it, do you think that that's an appropriate public health approach to thinking about diet roughly? I think that it's a bit of a nuanced conversation because context is very important. So it depends on the individual person. I, I wouldn't describe the food pyramid as necessarily the ideal human diet, but I do think that relative to what the average person in the United States is consuming, the, the food pyramid would actually be a significant mm. improvement. Yeah. And so, you know, to me, if we move people in that direction, you know, again, it comes back to actually your, your last question, which is that we have to meet people where they are. And if a person mm -hmm. is 10% plant-based, trying to get them to go 100% all at once is absurd. That's not going to work. So it's about, from a public health standpoint, moving people from the standard American diet to what would, you know, look like the food pyramid and eventually to a more plant-based diet. If we could have what we want. I mean, I think a, a big piece of this isn't, isn't just education. I mean, nutrition education is really hard to follow, even for those who have an education in healthcare, right. but access is really seems like a bigger threat. And there are most places in America where fiber rich plant-based foods aren't accessible. When I think about the foods they have at public schools, when I think right. about food deserts, what are, what are kind of your thoughts on access? Well, I'm really glad that you're bringing this up because I think that this is a very important topic for us all to grapple with because we are a society which means that we are bound together with the purpose. And that purpose is intended to lift one another up, not to function in, in isolation and compete against one another, but rather that we are all pulling the rope in the same direction so that there's a greater good for all of us. And I think that identifying these issues, that's number one, we've done that. And then mm -hmm. I think that the next step is, you, you actually mentioned this before we even jump into access, I think that there's health literacy issues. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to go and speak at a Whole Foods and have an affluent crowd where everyone has a college degree. That's a very different thing than going into communities where people don't have high school degrees. Yeah. And so, and I think that it really needs to start with empowering people with knowledge so that they can actually understand and make choices. And to ignore that or to move past that and jump into access issues part of the access challenge, this is a complex nuanced issue and probably we could talk for an hour about it. But part of the access challenge is that if we're talking about fresh produce, which by the way, actually shouldn't be the majority of your calories. But if we're talking about fresh produce, part of the problem is people don't buy it. Mm -hmm. And if they don't buy it, then basically the store is not going to stock it because they're losing money on it. Yeah, And that's one of the parts that contributes to this. That's actually just one little part. Yeah. I think that one of the things that I would really encourage people to think about is that the healthiest people on the planet, we're going to talk about the blue zones, I believe. Yeah. In the five blue zones, 
where people are basically the most likely to live to be 100 years old, what we discover is that all five of these places are consuming a diet that is really the backbone is whole grains and legumes. And those are non-perishable items that generally are not expensive. Obviously, though, it starts with education and yeah. explaining to people how to start with that and then build a plate around that. Yeah. And, and I do think, Haley, that like, again, when we get back to health literacy and education, there are ways in which we can actually offer fr fresh produce to people that are extremely inexpensive. So an example of that is sprouting. You mm. could literally buy 30 pounds of lentil sprouts for, <laughs> it's probably $35. And that 30 pounds of lentil sprouts, when you take a half of a cup of those lentil sprouts, and they can be organic, by the way, and you put them in a jar, a half of a cup of lentil sprouts will turn into four cups of lentil sprouts in about three days. And it only takes you about three minutes a day to do that. It's just so easy. Yeah. It's a nuanced, it's a nuanced topic. And I do think that education is an important part of it because I, you know, I'll give you a quick example. In my medical office, we often would have lunch catered by pharmaceutical reps. And that's a whole nother topic. I, <laughs> I have thoughts Pizza, on that too. Like but, what was it? <laughs> yeah. But like if they bring yeah. in Chick-fil-A, it disappears. People eat all of it. But if they bring in a salad, and I'm not talking about like a bad rotten like iceberg lettuce and, a, and yeah. like one tomato Shredded. salad. I'm talking about like yeah. yeah. I'm talking about like really good stuff. And you bring that in and people actually go out and buy food because they don't want to eat what was brought in, right? So hmm. that's part of the issue. I read a book years ago. I think it was called Nudge. I remember them just talking about some studies they did around where they place foods in the cafeteria lineup and how they could actually encourage better eating behaviors by placing the healthier foods at the front of the line and the dessert foods at the end. But if you put the desserts food first, you're going to grab it. But if you put, you know, you're, you're more likely to grab it than if it's like the salads, the veggies, whatever, you know, is healthier up front, then you kind of get people hooked into this mindset, I guess, of healthy eating throughout the, the cafeteria line, which I think is another piece of this. There's education, there's access, and then there's, are we setting people up for failure? And, you know, thinking about, I, I mean, really where, you eat as a kid growing up. I mean, I, I ate so many breakfast and lunch at school. Um, I had more meals at school than at home. Yeah. And, and just how that the, the mac and cheese, the mashed potatoes, the chicken nuggets, I mean, those were the staples. Oh, totally. And then I would, you know, treat myself to some Skittles after. But, um, you know, and that's why kids are like so tired at after lunch and just need a nap and they're not energized from that. But I think these are great can, points. Yeah. yeah. And, and these kids are not, you can't expect a child to choose the healthier food when the, <laughs> when the ultra processed food, like the chicken nugget was basically designed to be sort yeah. of like hyper, hy like hyper palatable where they just mm. like starve for it. They just crave yeah. it so much. Yeah. And you get to dip it in ketchup. Sure. filled <laughs> ketchup. I mean, it's fun. So, okay. So Going back to the blue zones, I know there must be a town in Italy on that. And I just want to know how Italians can seemingly live off of amazing food, cheese, so much cheese, pizza, 
bread, wine. Is it just that's what the tourists see them eat and they're really eating lentils and veggies at home? (laughs) How does that incorporate? Because to me, I I look at the Italian diet and that's the diet I want. But if I eat like that, I'm not going to get skinny. So I think that there's layers of complexity to this. First of all, I think part of it is perception of what we consider to be an Italian diet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's kind of like you go on a cruise ship and they have like, they have the buffet and it's like from around the world. And any person who's from those individual countries is actually insulted by what they've put on that buffet, <laughs> right? I don't think that the majority of their calories are pasta and cheese, but the cheese, the cheese that they're consuming is different than say a slice of American cheese where that American cheese could literally sit outside for a year and still look like a piece of cheese and not completely rot. That's, yeah, you know, weird and bizarre. If we look at Italy and we zoom in on the blue zones, you will find one of the five blue zones. And by the way, for the people who are um, unclear on this topic, the blue zones are the five locations around the planet where they have discovered that people are the most likely to live to be 100 years old and in good health. And so one of the blue zones is Sardinia, which is off the coast of Italy. Yeah. And if you talk to Dan Butner, who is actually a friend of mine, and he's a National Geographic explorer and the author of all the Blue Zones books, he'll tell you that you know it's more than just the food. These people are up in the mountains and they're walking and they're hanging out with their friends and they have social time. And there's so there's much um, more complexity than just what goes into their mouth. Yeah. But but at the same time, their diet is like driven by legumes. If you ask Dan, what is the number one blue zone food? He's going to tell you it's legumes. And that's because you'll find it in Sardinia, but you also mm. find the legumes of their own variety in all five blue zones, Icaria, Greece, and then the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, mm. Okinawa, Japan, and then finally Loma Linda, California. Those are the five blue zones. It may be black beans in Costa Rica and like, you know, edamame in Okinawa, but they're eating beans. What are some others? So... Are chickpeas considered legumes? Oh, totally. Chickpeas, yeah. chickpeas, edamame, mung beans, uh, lentils, peas. Split pea, yeah. Yeah. And then, like, believe it or not, a peanut is a legume. Most people don't realize that. Yeah. They think it's a nut. It's not. So there's so many diets out there. How can you tell the difference? Like, do you have a framework for telling the difference between what is actually a life-changing, health-enhancing, I'm using the word diet, but just kind of general general way of eating versus a fad diet that is going to be setting you up for failure, setting you up for disordered eating, just not effective. And I'm thinking of, you know, ones that I hear about, the keto diet, paleo, whole 30, because sometimes it's easy to like read a book and follow it, right? Right. But how do you know if you're going to follow the right thing or not? There's so many options. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Well, first of all, there are elements to these diets that I actually like. So I don't want to sound like I categorically despise them. But I, I think what it sort of comes down to is we have to, you know, first of all, ask the question, does this even make sense? Mm-hmm. So when we have diets that vilify, for example, legumes and make it sound like legumes are the cause of all of our health issues in the United States, do we really believe that the legumes are causing our health issues? I mean, actually, if you look into it, <laughs> the average amount of bean consumption in the United States per year is six pounds. That means that the average person is consuming like a couple ounces of beans per week. That's it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And compared to our parents, our parents' generation, we're actually eating about eight pounds of beans. Oh, interesting. So it's we're actually on decline. Yeah. Well, and, that's the problem. Whatever our parents did is not cool. Right. So, <laughs> but you know, but then, but then there are these like very fad diet type books that will try to convince you, oh, there's this thing that exists in beans and they're, they're the problem and you have to get mm. rid of them. And then that becomes like, that's what you find in paleo, like beans and whole grains are being removed. And I just don't see how that makes any sense to me. Yeah. And, and then the other thing is, I think we need to have a, our antenna up. And this is not just nutrition. This is like life in general these days. We have moved into an era where like the internet was great for information 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And now it's just a source of confusion and misinformation. Yeah. And I can assure you that if there is a group of people who want to hear a particular opinion, there will be someone to deliver that opinion on the internet. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so we, it, it requires us to actually be savvy consumers and have our antenna up for something that is more marketing and hype as opposed to actual science. And when it's science, it actually is usually the stuff that is like what your grandmother told you. And it's just hard for us to make something like that, like really sexy and appealing and make it sound like, oh, we found a shortcut, right? But the, the truth is that there really aren't shortcuts. There's consistency mm-hmm. and sustainability. And when you lean into that consistency and sustainability, and you just gently nudge yourself in the right direction. That's how you actually achieve lifelong results. And it doesn't feel like a diet or a fad. It's just, that's the way you're living. And it probably needs to be something that is, you kind of like lean into over time versus a complete 180 because you can't, you're not going to be able to make drastic changes healthfully. And I, it's just, it feels impossible to kind of do that unless you've, you know, got, maybe you've gone through gastric bypass and you, you absolutely have to. But I think for most people, it's just such a drastic change that it's not sustainable. And so maybe thinking about, can I eat less processed foods this year? That's my goal is less processed foods. And then, you know, processed foods stop tasting good to you. Chips are less appealing. When That's I gave very up- true. No, and I gave up soda. I, you know, it was extremely hard to do. I've talked about this in other podcasts, but I have a picture of myself as a toddler with soda in my bottle, and it was something that I had I, I, I was addicted to for yeah. many years. And I finally gave it up when I was about twenty five, and it was it was the hardest thing that I've ever done. I'm, I'm not being light about that. It was extremely hard, um, and I can't imagine having to have given that up along with giving up chips or ice cream or some of the other things. So, you know, now I don't desire it at all. And in fact, if I had a sip of it, I think it would gross me out. But I think that that's one one way to think about it is kind of dipping your toe, um, you're kind of getting used to either adding something that you're eating more of or getting rid of something. But I'm not an expert. You are. Well, and I'm also not a fan, just to be clear, I'm also not a fan of like laundry lists of things that you're not allowed to eat. Mm, right. Yeah. You mentioned disordered eating. And actually, I forgot to, to touch on this. You mentioned in the, in the very beginning of the show, my food monster. Yeah. Right? And to me, a food monster, like food is supposed to bring you great joy. Mm-hmm. It is supposed to be one of the best parts of your life. And when it stops being that and you start actually fearing foods like, oh, no, if I eat this, what's going to happen to me? Then 
we are in the very earliest phases of separating ourselves from the food and having an unhealthy relationship with it. Yeah. And that to me is a path that like I not to marginalize the very serious forms of disordered eating that are described in the DSM-4 like anorexia nervosa or bulimia. I also think that it's important for us to recognize that there are many different forms of disordered eating that exist where a person is having anxiety around their food and avoiding food. We'll be right back after the break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Is your wife uncomfortable with how much you talk about poop on social media? I think she's generally okay with it. <laughs> okay. All right. I haven't gotten in trouble for it yet. Okay. There is one part that I think she may hold me accountable for. So we have two kids. My daughter is seven. My son is five. And that kind of age category, they become enamored with poop. And the problem is daddy is a poop doctor. <laughs> and daddy is probably talking about poop more than anyone, including like my daughter can read you know, yeah. and daddy's walking around the house wearing a t-shirt that says, eat plants, take epic, epic dumps. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so I don't know that I'm setting a great example for my children. So I'm a little embarrassed. Or are that. you though? Or is like normalizing this because it's like, it's something you talk a lot about when you're young and then you stop talking about it for the rest of your life. And you've called poop the fifth vital sign. So tell, like, <laughs> tell us about poop. Well, so first of all, with being completely medical about it for a moment and calling it the fifth vital sign is not actually intended to be a joke, believe it or not. I'm actually being completely serious. Like I really believe that this should be the fifth vital sign because if we're going to take like measures of a person's cardiovascular health, right, which is their heart rate and their blood pressure, we're taking measures of their respiratory health, like what is their respiratory rate, right? Or we're taking their weight. If the gut microbiome matters for our health, which I wholeheartedly believe that it does, I, the science is real 
And we are actively like, this is the new frontier of discovery. 200 years ago, it was, can we cross the country and find the Pacific Ocean? And now it's what's going on with the gut microbiome. And it's transforming the way that we view the human body, where we do millions of CAT scans per year, yet we have discovered a new organ in every sense of the word. This organ, our gut microbiome, this community of 38 trillion microbes that are concentrated inside your large intestine, they're completely required for us to digest our food, for our metabolism, the balance of our immune system, our hormones, mm -hmm. our mood, our brain health, and they actually regulate the expression of our genetic code. So like that's everything that matters for human health yeah. coming from a doctor's perspective. Yeah. And if that is so important, then we can stigmatize poop and we can turn our nose up to it and be like, oh, I'm not talking about that or, oh, that's not important. But actually the biggest window into the health of your gut microbiome is what's in the toilet bowl. And there's actually an intense, insane amount of information there where from a GI doctor's perspective, literally what you see tells me something about whether or not your gut is in a good place, which is a very relevant thing because the gut is so critically important to all these elements of human health. So when I say that the bowel movements are the fifth vital sign, this is, a, this is me making a call to action for the medical community yeah. that it's time that we stop stigmatizing bowel movements and yeah. stop ignoring digestive health and acknowledge that like, if you want a healthy heart, guess what? You need a healthy gut. If you want healthy lungs, guess what? You need a healthy gut. Like this is the centerpiece sure. of human health. So there was a company, I'm not sure if you were familiar with them back in 2015, maybe called Ubiome. Yeah. And they were really on the cutting edge of the microbiome. And I think they got in trouble for some sort of fraud and the company shut down. It was a big disaster. Not as big as Theranos, but it was a big disaster. <laughs> yeah. So we looked at it as, at Rock Health. We looked at the, the opportunity and I thought, it's going to be really hard to get people to poop in a bag and ship it like through 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 their post office, you know, to this company. And I and I and we passed on it. And I think that was the right answer. Obviously, it was the right answer. But it seems like maybe we're kind of at the right time now. You can help reduce the stigma. Maybe you know, fecal sample testing is more possible. Yeah, and we're also we're moving into the 21st century with our ability to understand how to use this. Mm. Mm -hmm. So we we originally found such great complexity in the microbiome that we spent the first basically 15 years just kind of describing what we were seeing. But now we're moving into a phase where this is about not just describing it, but actually manipulating it and using it to our advantage to achieve better health outcomes. The, yeah. the issue is that you're not average. I'm not average. The people at home are not average. And every single mm -hmm. one of us living inside of us has this complex ecosystem of 38 trillion microbes that is completely bio-individual to the point there are 8 billion people on this planet and there's no one on the planet like you, Haley, or the person listening at home to us. Even among identical twins, they only share about 35 or 37% of their microbes. So basically what we're doing is every person who participates, it's almost like a citizen science project where, look, the NIH is not going to pay for this. They don't have the money. And the pharmaceutical industry doesn't profit off of this because there's no drug involved. But as a society, if we want to band together to do high quality research that we can help ourselves, this is the way that we approach that. And so yeah. each person basically participates and they contribute their information, which includes a microbiome specimen, 
they wear a continuous glucose monitor where basically their blood sugar is being checked around the clock. And they do that for anywhere from a week to two weeks. You get your blood lipids checked. And then you eat a muffin that by eating this muffin, we can compare Dr. B's results to Hallie's results to the person at home's results. And finally, you enter what you're eating into a food app. And if we had 10 people, it would be worthless. But we have 20,000 and soon 100 and eventually a million. And what happens is all this information goes into a massive supercomputer. It runs complex machine learning algorithms. And when it's done, it can identify trends that affect individual users. So, so basically, when you collect these people from around the world, I mean, this could include people from the US, people from the UK, but every single person is contributing to this large-scale science project. And these supercomputers can run these complex machine learning algorithms that identify trends that affect the individual user, where then what you can do is come forward and you say, Haley, with your personal unique biology, taking into account your gut microbiome, here are the foods that like are best for your metabolism and that like really make your engine run the way that it's supposed to. And so the beauty of it is that it's not about restriction or eliminating. It's quite simply about understanding your own personal biology and then using that information to empower choices where you're actually leveling up without restriction. So you eat until you're full, but you eat food that's better for your biology. And in doing that, what we're discovering is that people are instantly feeling energized, having way better energy. And at the same time, they are accomplishing their health goals of improving their metabolism. So, okay, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the gut-brain connection. Yeah. So I have anxiety, and one of the symptoms that I feel when I'm you know, feeling anxious is literally being sick to my stomach. I think this is something that a lot of people can relate to, but I'm, I'm just wondering if you can explain to us in, with your medical hat on, but in layman's terms, kind of how we can feel something in our stomach that really is in our head. Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, I'm trying to avoid the expression, it's all in your head because <laughs> we don't want to go there. But yeah. no, but in all seriousness, when a person is experiencing these types of symptoms, first of all, it's completely real. And there's no such yeah. thing as it's all in your head. And I think the important thing for people to understand is that first and foremost, you are not like separately functioning organs within your body. Yes, we may have a cardiologist for a heart and a gastroenterologist for the gut. That's because us humans in our minds are, are limited in our ability to learn everything. But you are completely integrated and every part of your body is communicating and talking to the other parts. And that includes the way in which the gut is talking to the brain and the brain talks to the gut. It's a two-way communication. Mm-hmm. And there's several different ways that this happens. It's quite fascinating. So the gut is able to produce neurotransmitters. There's over 30 neurotransmitters produced in the gut. Serotonin is the happy hormone. It's associated with our mood, our energy levels. And when we take medications that improve our mood, they usually work by increasing serotonin levels. And 90% of serotonin is produced in the gut. Interesting. And the precursor molecules like 5-HT are able to actually cross the blood-brain barrier into the brain and affect our brain and our brain chemistry. So there are several ways in which the gut communicates to the brain, but then it comes back down from the up top where the brain can release a hormone in times of stress called CRH, corticotropin-releasing hormone. And if I'm getting 
chased by a dog. This is an advantage to me because it will activate my sympathetic nervous system and it will allow me to run faster and climb a tree and escape this dog that wants to maul me. But that's very different than like having some sort of stress in your life or trauma or something that is perpetually activating this hormone. And then the hormone sets off a cascade that is our stress response. And included in that cascade is actually uh, alteration of digestive function. Yeah. It affects our motility. It affects sensation, the way that we feel. We actually have more, five times more nerves in our gut than we do in our spinal cord. And it actually affects our gut microbiome where with the activation of this hormone and the stress response, we actually see a movement towards what we would describe as dysbiosis, which means a damaged gut. And this explains why in times of stress, many of us actually manifest our stress with digestive symptoms. It could be bloating or cramping or diarrhea. Yeah. And that's actually the result of this brain-gut connection and how the brain can actually affect the gut. And so this is why sometimes people with IBS are prescribed antidepressants. So another question for you, if prescribing antidepressants can help with gut issues, if eating a more plant-based diet, high-fiber diet can improve your gut, can that improve your mood and mental health? Yes, definitely. I think that that's very clear. But actually, it's kind of interesting that you're asking me this because I'm actively working on a research project with Zoe looking at this exact thing. Mm. So just to bring people up to speed on where we're at, we know in randomized controlled trials, if you feed people a high-fiber diet, you will see improvements in mood. We know that our gut microbes are associated with mood disturbance, where you will see a different gut microbiome in people that have, for example, major depression or anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. The issue, though, is that we haven't fully flushed out the complete picture of connecting food to microbes to mood. And that's what I'm actively trying to work on right now because using the information that we have available to us in this app, people don't just enter what they eat. They also tell us how they feel. Mm -hmm. And so they'll actually use a visual analog scale. Like it's basically a bar that could you could slide it to wherever you feel from zero to 100. And we can ask questions like, what is your energy level and how much anxiety do you have? Yeah. And so people are giving us that information. And so now we we know what they eat. We know what their microbiome says. And we know how much stress they have in their life or how much anxiety they have. So now we're just fitting the pieces together using modern research techniques to really try to understand this better. So interesting. Well, please keep us posted. We are unfortunately out of time. Thank you so much for all of your insights. You can check out Dr. B's book, Fiber Fueled, as well as his new book, The Fiber Fueled Cookbook at your local bookstore. And if you want to see his poop posts, you can follow him on Instagram at thegutheathmd. Thank you so much, Dr. B. Thanks for having me, Haley. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Brianna Seely. Our intern is Antonella Sterniolo. Our host is Hallie Tecco. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Brianna Seely. 
For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.